So, like, do you have any idea how this show is going to be structured? Like, is there a particular order you want to go in? Well, I figured, um, no. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a real problem. Okay, let's think about this before we start. Hello listeners, welcome to the Non-Toxic Fanboys podcast, where as always, the name is aspirational. I am Glenn Butler, and in our last episode, we covered the Quibi reboot series of The Fugitive, and we are back today because it turns out you cannot talk about The Fugitive and also be friends with the great Alana Kelly and not talk about the 1993 Harrison Ford movie, The Fugitive. So I am glad to say that we are once again joined by our frequent guest and dear friend, Alana Kelly. Alana, have you ever been falsely accused of something? And if so, did Andreas Katsulis actually do it? I've been accused of things. None of them were murder, and Andreas Katsulis did zero of them. (laughs) Mostly crimes of elementary school era. I'm glad to hear that. I hope you weren't falsely imprisoned over them. Just false timeout. As always, I'm also accompanied by my brother, Scott Butler. Scott, have you ever been falsely accused of something? And if so, did Andreas Katsulis actually do it? It's okay if you don't have an answer, because I actually have one for you. Really? Well, what's your answer? I don't know if you remember this at all, but there was an incident when Mom found in my bedroom some pornography magazines. Uh, Uh-oh. And her instant conclusion was that you gave them to me. I don't remember this at all. (laughs) Oh my gosh. It was the day that you had a tag sale with your high school friends. Okay. I remember doing that. (laughs) And in the middle of the tag sale, mom, like, burst out of the door and demanded that you come in the house immediately. For those of you born after the year 2000, porn used to be available in a paper format (laughs) that you could procure (laughs) at a store. Yes, exactly. There was a time when that was a thing. Of course, I must note, Andreas Katsulis didn't give me any porn. Are you sure? I mean, you only need one arm. Well. (sighs) (laughs) I'm not going to make any jokes about an artificial right hand. (laughs) No, no, indeed, I must confess that I am the one who stole the porn. You stole it? I stole it from my aunt. Oh, layered. (laughs) Oh, this whole thing just gets more and more twisted. Scott, I don't know if you remember this either. When mom and dad would take weekend trips to, like, Niagara Falls or Atlantic City or whatever... At one point, they eventually started leaving me in your tender loving care, but for a while, they dropped me off at our aunt's house for the weekend. I don't even remember that. I remember when we were left alone, we spent like 56 hours watching DVDs. Yeah, we watched your DVD collection and got a stack of pizzas, which we kept doing rather far into adulthood. Yeah, I was going to say, that's not over, is it? I mean, we're literally doing a podcast where we talk about movies. Well... 
There are certain economic disincentives to the stack of pizzas these days. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I was at our aunt's house for the weekend, and I don't know why she had a stack of porno magazines in her basement, but she did. Well, I know. <laughs> Actually, this must have been when I was in the sixth grade, because I remember there was a field trip to the zoo. And she came as one of the chaperones, and while we were at the zoo, she kind of side-eyed me and heavily implied that my mom had told her that she found the porn and she knew where I got it. Wow. My goodness. All of this is so much simpler with the internet. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, we got the internet when I was a sophomore in high school. At least that's when we got broadband. And yeah, it was, you know... All engines fire from there. Do you remember when we got the broadband, the first thing mom wanted to do with it was download the Pamela Anderson, Tommy Lee sex tape? That was the first thing? That was literally like the first thing she said was like, that's what she wanted to see. She was curious to see it. She had heard about it. She was curious to see it. And I remember Glenn was so uncomfortable. Yes, incredibly. I was just like, yeah, sure, let's sign up for broadband. I can find that. I can do an internet search. Let's let's go. Let's get the broadband. I want the broadband. And Glenn was just, like, cringing so much he was almost physically smaller. I like how you're the good son in that story because you're the one who looked up porn for your mom on the internet. I don't care. I just want the fucking broadband. <laughs> I believe the night it actually happened, I literally collapsed to the floor. <laughs> I remember that because the computer was in your bedroom. So the three of us are all in there and I'm doing the search and mom's like behind me waiting and you're just like off to the side somewhere trying to shrink yourself into non-existence so you didn't have to be there. And then I finally found the thing and mom and I switched places. Yeah, yeah, you found the video, you and mom switched places, she sat at my desk and, like, held her glasses up so she could see better. And she, like, started commentating on it. Like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, man. <laughs> I think I did a little better the day much later on when we got mom a laptop, and... She asked me to look up gay porn because, quote, I want to see what the boys do. <laughs> I think I to know your mom better. She and I have hella stuff in common. <laughs> um, I had come out as bi in the meantime. Mm -hmm. It wasn't too long after that that you came out, actually, because I remember one of the first things I said was, well, now you and mom can share porn. Yeah, right. But yeah, by the time she asked to see gay porn, I had come out as one of the things I would come out as in the future, but she's missed a lot of those. She didn't enjoy it. She seemed very displeased with what she saw. Which, I don't know, I found a little confounding, but I don't know. Maybe she's not a gay man. You know, I suppose. <laughs> anyway, I don't think Andreas Katsulis did any of that. Yeah, I'm gonna go with zero responsibility for that. Elena, did your parents ever find your porn? 
They didn't so much find my porn as discover that I was in like an AOL based relationship with somebody across the country and like our phone bill was so high. <laughs> Andreas Katsulis? As far as I know, it wasn't Andreas Katsulis. But uh, I just said it was a mistake and maybe they bought it, but definitely my parents and his parents were trying to figure out what that was about. It was awkward. I'm sure it was incredibly awkward, as is this transition back to the topic of the show. Hey. <laughs> Alana, I know that you have been a huge fan of the 1993 film of The Fugitive for quite some time. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what in particular draws you to it so heavily? Just what makes someone watch a movie annually for 20 years? I'm going to try not to just block speak for an hour because that'd be too much. But my highlight reel for why The Fugitive is one of the greatest of all time uh, when it comes to the action slash thriller genre is that it is so carefully and tightly written. For me, it is really about the script. It's a beautiful balance of dialogue among Tommy Lee Jones's team and silence with Harrison Ford. And the action beats are so tight. There's not too many of them. And the mystery is pretty solid. So it's really about the construction of the film. And then everything that was added to it just takes it into greatest status for me. I know, Alana, you haven't seen the series that Glenn and I reviewed last time, but I can't help but compare the two since I saw them back to back. And oh, my God, this film is so much better like you said, the construction of it, just how well plotted it is, how well everything fits together, how well everything flows from one thing to another. Oh my god, it's just such a revelation how much better all of those aspects are in this film versus the series. Yeah, one of the main things I was thinking about when watching the movie again to do this show was just how tight the plotting is. Yeah. There is a tightrope that this type of action thriller has to walk between Harrison Ford's character staying one step ahead of the people chasing him, but only one, and he has to keep barely escaping through luck or intelligence in ways that don't become cartoonish. Mm-hmm. Which, again, to make a quick comparison, so many of the story beats of the Quibi show are cartoonish and terrible and indicate <laughs> poor thinking on the part of every character. In this film, the characters are intelligent, they act intelligently, and none of the twists are wildly implausible or, like I said, cartoonish. Yes, there's no cheating. There's foundation work for all the reveals in the mystery that make it solid. And there's good character motivation. So like somebody really bothered to world build for this, even though it's like it's set in a real place, like not that type of world building, but like the world building in the story, who did what and why all carefully answered, all revealed to us in, a, in an orderly and very interesting fashion. When you said all of the characters are intelligent and acting intelligently, that's another stark contrast. The series is sort of just like a chase where one person is hiding and the other is trying to find them, but it doesn't go very much deeper than that. 
the film is very much almost like a chess match between Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones, where Harrison Ford is, you know, ducking him and evading him, but also trying to investigate the mystery. And Tommy Lee Jones is trying to suss out what he's doing in order to figure out where he's going to go next. There's Mm -hmm. definitely a lot of thought that goes into all of their actions, as opposed to the series, which no thought went into anything. We should really... This is starting to sound like my review of the Star Trek score, where I spent most of my time trashing the previous Jerry Goldsmith scores. (laughs) We we really need to talk about this movie without just trashing the series again. Yeah, the movie has enough of its own merits. Thinking about the tightness of the plotting, and how much sense each of the plot developments makes while not being obvious. Like, over the course of the film, Tommy Lee Jones' character comes to realize that Harrison Ford is innocent of his crime, but it's not explicated. It's not made obvious. He never says it out loud. He just slowly figures it out over the course of the film, and you see that in Tommy Lee Jones' acting, in some of his smaller facial reactions. In the way he delivers some of his lines as he decides to have people reinvestigate the crime, re-interview everyone, as in the course of figuring out where is this guy going and why, he has to follow Harrison Ford's character through that investigation, and as he does, he figures it out himself. Exactly, because he has a job to do. Exactly. It's not shoved in your face. It just happens. Yes, it's excellent show, Don't Tell, but I have to quibble with one thing, which is at the very climactic moment in the hotel, Samuel Gerard, that's Tommy Lee Jones's character, does in fact let Richard know that he knows he's innocent. He raises his voice to let him know that he's there, and then he says all the facts that he's gathered just at the very end. But yeah, before that, you're totally right. Well, what I mean is that the movie doesn't say it out loud, like in a way that shoves it in your face. Right. Again, we need to stop making so many comparisons to the Quibi show, but there's literally a scene in the Quibi show where Kiefer Sutherland's character suddenly blurts out loud, Oh my god, he's innocent! Yikes. (laughs) And then it's a sudden twist, and everything changes, and he starts barking at his underlings, He's innocent! We have to find this person! And it's tell-don't-show, right? So he does say it at that point, but again, with intentionality, to get him to reveal himself. We learn when Richard jumps off the dam, he's not going to turn himself in, like he's not going to surrender. So then Gerard has that fact. He's not going to voluntarily surrender. So then what? He takes this leap of faith that he's not going to believe Richard's dead till they find the body. They don't find a body and then boom, he resurfaces. But yeah, so like Richard is dragging Gerard through the same journey and they encounter different obstacles. So it keeps it from being totally recycled from moment to moment. It's just so nicely put together as a cat and mouse. Sort of related to that, just watching the movie, it's obvious why Tommy Lee Jones was sort of the big star coming out of this. Absolutely. He just has so much personality and so much charisma in this role. He just jumps off the screen every time he's there. He just puts so much character into his character. I could have phrased that better. Uh, He's just, you can't take his eyes off him. You can't take your attention off him anytime he's on screen doing anything. Harrison Ford's performance is much more stoic. It's much more subdued. There are moments where you could really see the emotion on his face, but in general, his performance is much less expressive and much less emotive. Tommy Lee Jones just 
jumps off the screen. It's very interesting, right? Because this is a rare example of the lead actor having far less dialogue than the supporting actor. But screen time-wise, it pans out as Harrison being the lead. And Tommy Lee Jones definitely earned his Academy Award for Supporting Actor, which he was given for this role. Well, so much of Harrison's Ford role is Harrison's Ford. (laughs) Attorney's General. (laughs) Captain's America. Yeah. So much of Harrison Ford's role is investigating things on his own. It's like him alone in a room looking at records or him alone in a room researching stuff or him sneaking around trying not to be noticed. Tommy Lee Jones spends the entire time talking with his underlings, barking orders at the other police. Mm-hmm. I love watching it because I think Deputy Gerard is an amazing example of a boss. Like He delegates things to his team. He clearly trusts his team. I'm kind of like moved by how well he uses his team. It's just good boss energy. I actually like when I was a when I was a boss briefly, I actually like looked up to Gerard and tried to be a master delegator the way he is. I also want to compliment Joe Pantoliano for this early career turn. I forget what his character's name is. There's a lot of names on the team. But he's an excellent foil for Gerard. Or a foil might not even be the right thing because they have similar energy. But the commentary that he brings is great. As is the commentary from everyone else, including Noah, the obvious young one, like the baby one on the team. There's just nice moments between Gerard and all the underlings there. Given how quickly you had to make characters, they actually do feel fairly distinct. And I credit a lot of that to the writing, of course, but there's also a lot being given by the actors. I actually did make a particular note that, again, I don't want to go back to this well too many times, but I made a particular note that there's no moment in the entire series that is as skillfully done a piece of characterization, as subtle a piece of characterization, as seemingly effortless a piece of characterization, as when they're chasing Kimball down the sewer and Joe Pantoliano just says, Aw, shit, I just bought these shoes. <laughs> and it's just like a second and they move on past it, but it's just so... That kind of thing is indicative of just how well thought out, how well written, how well plotted, how well acted, just how well everything is done in this film. It's such a small moment, but it's so indicative that everything is just working so well. Yeah. And some of these folks I don't see that much. Like, I haven't seen Newman around. It's apparently the actor's name, Tom Wood. Haven't seen Daniel Roebuck, who plays Biggs. Haven't seen L. Scott Caldwell, who plays Poole. Like, I just... Good job, casting director, because it just lets them know. <laughs> Can we talk about the cast a bit? Because I am very confused by who got billing in this film. And I noticed it right off the bat, because when they run the list of names at the beginning of the movie, Seagull Ward gets third billing behind Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones. And she's in the movie for, like, a couple of minutes in various flashbacks. Like, she's already dead by the time the movie starts, so I was surprised she was billed so high. But then Julianne Moore is the next highest billed, and she's in, like, one scene. Honestly, I think it's how expensive it was to get them and what their contracts said. Because by the time it was 1993, Sela had been working for 10 years. Yeah, Sisters had already been running for two years, so... I mean, obviously, it all has to do with contracts. It just struck me as weird, because, like, I didn't remember this movie that well 
And so Sheila Ward's billing jumped out at me. Like, isn't she like only around for a few minutes of flashbacks? So her billing at the top of the movie jumped out at me. And then when Julianne Moore was next highest billed, I expected her to be a much larger piece of the movie than she wound up being. I feel like I read somewhere that she was actually in it more and a bunch of it got edited. Oh, okay. That makes sense. That actually might be true for Sela too, depending on what they were going to do with that. But that I don't know. I feel like I did specifically hear it about Julianne Moore. But yeah, it is interesting. And I think maybe they also wanted to put a couple women up top because it's very dude-centric. That is one thing that occurred to me rather late in the movie, that this movie is one very good piece of evidence that you can have a movie that starts with a guy's wife being killed or having been killed, and you can have a movie that very, very flagrantly has no interest in anything approaching the Bechdel test. That's still an incredibly good movie. Those are the sort of considerations that go, like, on average across an industry and across a culture. But as a piece of work, the movie is still fantastic. Yeah, there's a moment where it could have passed, which is when Julianne Moore's character asks the nurse what happened to the boy, but they're talking about a dude, so it fails the Bechdel test. <laughs> It also might have been possible when Tommy Lee Jones's team finds Copeland, the other escaped convict from the train accident. Oh, yeah. And his girlfriend, wife, unspecified partner is there. I mean, there could have been a small moment, but even that would be somewhat against the spirit of the thing. Can we talk about that scene and the fact that it's a no-knock raid by the mm. U.S. Marshals? where a woman is literally in her bed. Yeah. Like, that really struck me as, like, ways that parts of this have aged very poorly. Yeah, I mean, it is a movie substantially about the cops as well. It is about the cops. I hear what you're saying, though, Scott. It is interesting to look at it in a modern lens. And what do they end up doing? They end up shooting a suspect who is a black man. There's a couple things going on where they have to keep the conceit that it could, in fact, be Richard when we hear about whoever they're talking about got picked up by a woman on her way home after work. And we did, in fact, see Richard get in a car with the woman. And we're like, oh, shit. But yeah, like it does look different, especially the no-knock raid part. And I, I'm always struck by when Tommy Lee Jones is approaching the house and <laughs> act drunk Newman, he says that one of his team pulls the Velcro down on the back of his jacket so that whoever is watching can see that it is police action and not just some random people breaking into a house with rifles. But yeah, it does read different. And I, I appreciate you bringing it up because I didn't really think about that until right now. Well, it's probably not the sort of thing that would jump out if you're already very familiar with the movie. Like, if you were familiar with the movie before, that particular context was as prominent as it is now. Mm-hmm. You raise an excellent point. Because I do know the song ridiculously well. The other part of this that jumped out at me as, like, putting this film significantly in the past is the ease with which Harrison Ford can just breeze in and out of secure areas of the hospital. They're much more secure now than they were then, you know. Like, he could just walk right in and wander around the labs and look stuff up and go in and go out and go back in and go back out. And 
Yeah, you can't make a janitor badge with packing tape anymore <laughs> and have it work. Like everything has a chip now. Yeah, that thing would have like a microchip in it and a QR code. And... Yeah, you're right, Scott. It puts it more firmly in the early 90s. Also, the ease with which he accesses the database of people being treated by that department of the hospital. Scott, I know you know HIPAA regulations very well (laughs) with the sort of security that has to be put on that stuff at this point. Well, at the very least, he would need an active user login. And, like, they should have disabled the Dr. Richard Kimball account, or at the very least, know that Dr. Richard Kimball logged in on their workstation. Yeah. To be fair, the law that created HIPAA was until 96, to be fair. But yeah, that would have been a lot looser at that point. A lot of their security may have just been, well, nobody but the doctors is going to be in this office. Sure. Instead, the um, modern technical innovation that this movie reflects is that there are surveillance cameras everywhere. That's true. I do like that they semi-cover this problem by having him sneaking around not his hospital. For a substantial part of the movie, yeah. Yeah, because he can't go to his hospital, obviously. He's very well known there, but he needed to know about the prosthetics clinic. And the the other thing that like rings my bell that puts it in a certain period is the fucking dot matrix printer he has to use in that scene. <laughs> you have to cover the noise of it by messing with the blinds. I just I love that detail. I feel great. And again, it's an intelligent touch. They don't ask us to just forget that there's someone in the next room or forget the noise of the printer. It's actually a a plot point. He has to be doing something. He has to disguise himself as the janitor to have a plausible reason to be closing the blinds and making that noise. Yeah, it's good detail. They're not just like idling. They want to make sure there's tension everywhere they can put it. They really rarely break it. It's all Gerard breaking it by being funny. But everything with Richard is tense as fuck. The other thing, if we're going to stay on this topic for a moment, the other thing that really marks this movie as being in the past is the fact that there are payphones everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I imagine it must be, well, at first I was thinking it must be a lot harder to make under-the-radar phone calls now that there aren't payphones everywhere, but I guess just, like, prepaid cell phones have replaced the payphone. Yeah, burner phones, for sure. I'm trying not to go back to the well of comparisons with the TV show again here. (laughs) In summary, the TV show sucked worse. It way, way sucked. (laughs) So if we're going to commend this film as uh, one of the greatest of all time in the action genre, which I do, I think it'd be good to talk about some of the action beats. You guys up for that? Absolutely. So I just put them in order. There's four that I think are really stand out. So the first one is the train crash, which is very near the top of the film. The prisoners are being transported from one place to another, including Dr. Kimball. They're on a bus. One of the prisoners has made a shiv and attacks one of the guards. And in the struggle, the bus driver is shot. In the head, actually, um, the bus crashes, rolls down in a ravine, and happens to land on train tracks, which, great. But then, of course, of course, of course, a train is actually bearing down on them. So this is amazing for a number of reasons. It's nicely shot. Like, when the train goes off the road, they have a camera inside rotating it, and we see the actors being banged from one side to the other. 
And then it lands on the train tracks and the train is bearing down and they do actually collide. And what I was very interested to hear about is it's a super complicated, many things go wrong. One of the train cars has logs on it. Like it's a fucking mess. One of the things I learned by listening to director commentary, which I miss in the streaming world, you don't get it the way you used to on DVD. That's a real train. That is a real thing that they orchestrated and they had over 20 cameras rolling because they were obviously only going to do that shit once. But I think part of why it sounds and looks so awesome is that they did, in fact, crash a train into a bus. Wow. And make part of the train derail. Like they orchestrated how the train was going to break up because in the crash, the engine and a couple other cars continue forward. And then a few cars after jump the track and bear down on Richard. He's trying to escape in leg irons. <laughs> like it's a tense moment. But yeah, like I love that after they were done paying for a top notch script, they actually did spend money on this amazing train crash. And I think it looks really, really good. I had wondered if that was all, like, literally done and filmed, in particular when the bus was rolling down the hill. That, I think, especially in 1993, would be very hard to show that convincingly. And if they really did crash a real-ass train into a real-ass bus, then, yeah, that totally makes sense. Is it just me, or was the train literally chasing Dr. Richard Kimball a little reminiscent of the boulder at the beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark? It does. It's so great. I was going to say, that's where the scene sort of started to lose its impact for me, is when the train... I mean, the train jumps the tracks. Okay, fine. But then it seems like the train is literally chasing him through the forest. That's the point where it started to a little too closely resemble the Leslie Nielsen parody movie, Wrongfully Accused. (laughs) Yeah, it's a pretty famous little visual joke that he's trying to hustle out of the way of the train, but he moves forward, which makes no sense. And then, of course, he's in leg iron still. Yeah. So, like, maybe that one is a little distracting. That was just a little too far for me, but, you know, I'm kind of a cynical bastard. But yeah, it's not that long ago that in order to set up a shot like that, you'd have to literally crash a train. Like, I would have guessed it was done in miniatures, but it wasn't. You couldn't do the trees that convincingly in miniature. Oh, that's true. But yeah, like, it was obviously an expensive move, but I think it added a lot. And then, of course, it doesn't have only spectacle. We need an accident so that Richard is injured which adds tension to his escape and also makes him need to go to a hospital and figure out how to negotiate that. But then him going to the hospital allows him to shave his beard off, which he needs to get rid of that immediately. And you could do that at a place like a hospital. It's another example of how this story moments and what they show on screen flow from one to the next. Reason to change his appearance. So, okay, he needs to go somewhere to change his appearance. Okay, so why does he need to do that? Like, it goes all the way back, which is just so finely constructed. It also adds another small amount of tension to the first stage of the chase because Gerard quotes the running speed of the average person absent injury, but we know he's injured, so Mm -hmm. he can't even get as far as they're already searching. Yes. And yeah, Gerard's energy about (laughs) how hard they're going to look is uh, very threatening to Richard. And then just to like round out that scene, we get to see some of his moral compass in action. Because even though it's a risk, he bothers to explain to the emergency room team that the guard has a puncture in his abdomen. 
And like one of the other people says, how the hell did he know that from looking at his face? And like, it's just quick, but like Richard bothered to take like 15 seconds and also probably reveal that it was in fact him who stole the ambulance by giving that information. So like, it makes him more sympathetic. And then the guard sees him and and immediately in the next scene with Gerard and his team, they're already tracing him because the guard gave him up. Yeah, right. Biggs is reporting to Gerard about the wounded guard swears he saw Kimball outside the ER and an ambulance is missing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, a lot of this movie is set up very carefully to keep Richard Kimball innocent of any sort of major crime. You know, he's not the one that initiates an escape. He's not the one that causes any of the destruction. That's, you know, someone else tries to escape. The overzealous guard is the one that starts shooting everyone. He's just sort of a beneficiary of happenstance that winds up with him escaping and running away. Even when he, like, has encounters with Gerard, like, he doesn't take the gun away from Gerard. He just picks it up after Gerard drops it. He doesn't even use the gun. Like, I think the worst thing he does in this entire movie is, like, stealing hospital records or possibly breaking into Andreas Katsulis' apartment. The whole story is very carefully constructed so that Richard Kimball doesn't actually commit very many crimes or any serious crimes at any point throughout. Nothing violent. He does slightly hold Gerard at gunpoint for a moment. Although in that scene, Harrison Ford does an incredible job portraying Dr. Richard Kimball as a person who is picking up a gun for the very first time in his entire life. Which would be better for me if they hadn't established earlier that he had a gun in the house. Like, he should know how to handle a gun better than that. Maybe it was her gun. I suppose. Although I think they established it was registered in his name. They did do that. I know what you're talking about, Glenn, that it looks like he's not comfortable holding it. Yeah. And he does do a good job with that. And he's, like, all nervous. But yeah, like, so that scene is actually the second action beat I wanted to cover, which is, it actually flows from one to another. The train, the ambulance, and then to the dam? Are they in a dam? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's the helicopter chase, which, again, is a budget thing, right? Where they're flying a helicopter around for this whole sequence. Yeah, and it's beautiful. And I love Gerard yelling at his team to use a map if they want to figure out how to get to the location. And like in the background of the helicopter shots, you can see an ambulance. And another secret director's commentary thing was that in order to get Harrison driving the ambulance, he just stole one of the like second unit camera people and they just like went off for 20 minutes so that he could drive and (laughs) the guy could shoot. Like, it's just a little problem-solving from our action star Harrison Ford. So they just, like, did all that and then cut the relevant stuff into the final product. But I just love that he was just like, I can handle this problem. Give me that guy with the camera. (laughs) We'll be back in 20. (laughs) And then we think it's all over. He's, like, boxed in. And, of course, it's not. He escapes down the sewer into this dam area that's a labyrinth. And, like, it's a visual example of the cat and mouse because Richard is making a path and Gerard has to follow him. But they, like, have different little choices they make. Like, Richard ditches one of his jackets, which is a big deal because it's cold and it's the Chicago area, Illinois area. He ditches one of his garments to try to throw them off. And then he sneaks down that incline and he does it fine. But Gerard falls, which is what causes him to lose his handgun, one of his handguns. 
And like, there's just so much tension. And then, of course, we get to the scene of Dr. Kimball's gun is drawn on Gerard. And he says, I didn't kill my wife. And what does Gerard say? For the big money, what does he say, boys? Scott actually found the sound clip the other day. <laughs> Nobody needs me. I don't care! He does not care. That's his character beat. He has one job and that ain't it. Exactly. And Richard has this like complex facial reaction that it's like shit. So it doesn't matter. This guy's never going to give up on chasing me. And then we get to the end and we see some of Gerard's restraint because it actually takes Richard a second to comply with Gerard's orders. He yells for Richard to drop his weapon and turn around and stuff. And Richard kind of is slow because in his head, we're about to find out that he's considering jumping. He hasn't shown us that yet. And it's a shock when he does it. But like, as I rewatch, I think that's part of why he's being so slow is because he's really weighing the pros and cons real quick of leaping off the dam. So here's my question. Do you think that he was willing to die? Like, do you think he was content with the idea that dying was definitely a possible outcome of jumping and that that would be just fine since everyone thinks he's guilty of killing his wife? Or do you think he was pretty sure he'd live? I mean, I think he probably thought he had nothing left to lose at that point. If he gets captured, he's going back to death row. He's not going to have any chance to prove his innocence then. That's true. Exactly. It's the only chance he has to do anything at that point. That's true about him being on death row anyway. And he says he's innocent of the crime and the marshal says, I don't care. Isn't that a perfect encapsulation of the U.S. criminal justice system? Yeah, honestly. <laughs> well, and the entire opening sequence where the Chicago cops decide that they have a guy who was there and who has motivation and they hear the 911 call and that's it. We're done. Perfectly ambiguous 911 call. Yeah. Oh, just brief shout out to the open. The style of the credits is fairly dated at this point, but I still think it's very effective to show the backstory. And also, like, for emotional purposes, they clearly illustrate from Jump that Richard didn't do it because we see the real assailant. Yes. So there's none of that ambiguity. Yeah, we don't need to fool around with any ambiguity there. We know what movie we're watching. Yes, and it's kind of a bold choice to exclude Richard's guilt from the mystery, but then it also makes it much clearer what he is doing. He's looking for the real assailant, which is good. But like I read that in earlier drafts, they were considering not doing it like that and having it be much more ambiguous. But I like what they did with it because when the judge slams his gavel and Richard startles, like he's just been notified that he's going to be executed by lethal injection. And then the gravel comes down and he just like startles so much. And it's just, it's so final, like, and so terribly unjust that we're like, we're all in it right away. And that's in like the first six minutes, I want to say, that we're invested in this guy. You know, our sense of injustice has been twigged. It's good stuff. It's important foundation, I would say. Yes. Yeah, I don't think this story works nearly as well if you don't know right from the start that he's innocent. Yes, agree. And they found sympathy in both the cat and the mouse. Like, we're interested in both of them. Very good stuff. Okay, the next one is my favorite scene of all time, which is Richard has identified five suspects based on the type of prosthetic they have when it would have been adjusted because he broke it during the fight. 
He's got it down to five. The other guys only have it down to like 40 or something because they didn't think about looking for the adjustment date the way Richard did because Richard's smart as fuck. Um, anyway, he's identified the five suspects and he goes to visit one in jail. He meets the guy for a second. It's not his guy. And as it happens, that's the same day that Gerard's team is looking at suspects. And what happens? They see each other across the hall and have to chase each other, which is beautifully done. And we can break that down in a second. But then it causes Richard to run out of the front of the building and immediately into the St. Patrick's Day Parade in downtown Chicago, which is why I choose St. Patrick's Day as the day of my annual rewatch, because it is my favorite St. Patrick's Day film content of all time. (laughs) I don't know if this is where we want to move into the score, but the jail chase on the staircase was one of the notes that I did have about it, where... The score overall, I think, is fairly pedestrian. It has a couple of highlights, but mostly it's kind of generic tension stuff or generic once you know James Newton Howard's tension action style. But I'll be damned if it doesn't make Harrison Ford and Tommy Lee Jones running in circles down a staircase exciting. The two of them on the staircase, it's like this twirly, swirly chase down the stairs. There's like a certain almost comical aspect to it where they're just sort of like looping around, chasing each other. That was my primary impression of it. Yeah, I have a feeling that's why they wanted that staircase. They wanted a staircase that was like that, like just kind of hopelessly long with all of those very shallow steps. Like they're not tall, but they're wide. So it just takes forever to fucking get around. Yeah, it does also make it more visually interesting than just a straight line chase. It does make it so interesting. And I like the moment where Gerard sees Kimball for like one second. He's like, "Mm, what the fuck? I'm going to look. And he looks down. And because of how the staircase is designed, you can sort of see into the floors below. And he calls Richard's name and Richard fucks up and responds to it. He looks up when he hears his name. And it's just like, Richard rarely makes mistakes in this enterprise, but that is a huge one to respond to the calling of his name. And that sets off the whole fucking thing, which is great. I like that he responds, though, because there's something that is easily lost in movies like this, and I feel like this movie doesn't lose, is that Richard Kimball isn't like a fucking action star. He's just a doctor. He's not an espionage expert. He's not a stuntman. He hasn't been trained in combat. He hasn't been trained in stealth ops. He's just a dude trying to do all this. And he hasn't been hardened by jail time even. (laughs) So I like that some things are really awkward. I like that he can't figure out how to get some stuff done. I like that when someone calls his name, he responds because like that's what humans tend to do. Yes, and he doesn't know Gerard is there. He doesn't know who's calling his name. So yeah, I agree, Scott. It it very much humanizes him and keeps it grounded and keeps it feeling real. Because if he was 100% impeccable in this enterprise, it would be a lazier writing choice. 
So like he's coming down the stairs, he finds the floor that he wants to exit on, and you can kind of see the limp that he was given in the beginning of the film, which I'm told is actually real, like Harrison's leg did kind of hurt. <laughs> so he can't really run as fast as he needs to run, but he also chooses to stop running when he rounds the corner and he tells the guards in the building that someone behind him is waving a gun. Which is hilarious because Gerard draws his weapon just as that's happened. Like, it's just so clever. Yeah, that's what struck me is just how clever that move is. It's so good. It gives him the extra, like, 10 seconds that he needs. And it also frustrates the fuck out of Gerard, of course. But, like, it's just right there. Such a clever fucking thing. And him calling officer. And, like, before we see it, we don't know why the fuck he would ever draw attention to himself that way. But then, like, you see this little micro plan. And allows him to get to the door. They've shut the door, but they shut it too late. And the drug can't follow immediately because the security door is finally shut. Like it, the timing is just so tight. And he takes off across the courtyard. There's team members on the roof, kind of like seeing where he went off to. And then he finds himself in the middle of the fucking St. Patrick's Day parade. And this is like my favorite factoid. That is the actual St. Patrick's Day parade, the year that they filmed. They snuck in with a handheld camera and Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford and let them do that until someone recognized Harrison and they had to bring to an end. Seriously? <laughs> Those are real super Irish lean dudes and like Irish step dancing girls and like people who are in unions in Chicago. Like Those are not actors, which is amazing. Were there a thousand production assistants following with likeness releases or could you just do that in the 90s? I was just thinking that as I said it, that you couldn't do that kind of shit now. And like, you can kind of see they're only within about one or two blocks that they're doing this shit. Cause you can tell from the background, like what stores are back there and stuff. Not that I've watched it a lot of times or anything. But yeah. Like I love that that was part of it. Like it's such an interesting set piece. And like, we see Richard be clever again. Like he steals one of the stupid leprechaun hats and he takes off his jacket. So he looks like he's in a different color outfit. And like when they break the scene and have Harrison carefully walking away, we see Gerard is like 10 or 15 feet behind him. And there's the bagpipes noise during this whole thing. <laughs> like there's so much texture there. And it's also a nice Valentine to Chicago, which has a huge Irish population. It's an intelligent use of the setting, too. Mm -hmm. And also an intelligent reflection of the setting. I think all of the Chicago cops in the movie actually have Chicago accents, so far as I can tell. They really do. So, Elena, what is the fourth action beat you want to cover? The last one is the culmination of the action, which draws us to a Chicago hotel. And there's just a lot of very interesting stuff that goes on. There's the confrontation of the true villain, which I think we're going to get into that in a second. But just like from an action standpoint, Richard has made it to the hotel. There was violence on the L that took him there. He ditches the two guns that he picked up during the scene, which I think is a very interesting move, but also shows that Richard inherently is not a violent person. Like he's about to go talk to the person who's responsible for the death of his wife and he ditches his weapons. So he finds the big bad, Dr. Charles Nichols, who's giving a keynote address about vascular health, which is interesting and for reasons we'll get into in a minute. And like disturbs him in the middle of the event, like walks in, he's seen by everybody in the room. Everyone starts like whispering and pointing because he's a wanted fugitive. He's been labeled as armed and dangerous. 
And we can kind of see things disintegrating for Dr. Nichols. And he steps off the stage and invites Richard to go speak out of the room. But Richard starts accusing him right there in the room in front of a bunch of ears, which uh, is also very tense. We see them go. We see like the MC guy trying to keep a hold of the crowd. And then it cuts into Nichols attacking Richard in the prep space. And then like they go into this sort of fight, which Nichols clearly starts it. He breaks a chair over Richard. But I guess by then, Nichols is just out of moves. And they fight all over the hotel roof. The CPD is involved because an officer went down in the L. Richard didn't do it, but the Chicago police think Richard did it. So they're out there with a helicopter. They are going to shoot on sight. And of course, they can kind of see Richard because he's on the roof. And then Gerard and Joe Pants join them on the roof, which gives them a reason to call off the CPD's helicopter. So it's just an interesting balanced moment between Gerard is literally chasing Richard because he's still chasing Richard because that's his job, but he also doesn't want to see the CPD shoot Richard. It seems clear to me that he doesn't want Richard to be shot. Well, by this point, he knows he's innocent. Yes, exactly. He knows he's innocent, doesn't want the CPD overriding his jurisdiction as a U.S. Marshal, and of course doesn't personally want to get shot, and it's nighttime. Like, we can't be just shooting people. So yeah, like, they fight. Richard and Dr. Nichols end up on top of an elevator shaft and Richard shoves Dr. Nichols through the glass, which is intense, and they both fall. Nichols into an elevator car and Richard on the roof of an elevator car. And we hear Gerard and Joe Pants run over and Joe Pants is going to shoot. And again, Gerard stops him. We're not shooting Richard. We're not doing that. And it also like takes my breath away every time because Gerard stops him by grabbing his forearm and saying, don't shoot. And I just feel like he so easily could have pulled the trigger anyway from being startled. Like that one always makes me gasp, even though I've seen it so many times. Still gets me. So yeah, the elevator's going down now and they land in the laundry, which is like such a perfect, intense, insane setting for this final piece of the confrontation. Because I didn't know what an industrial laundry room looks like or a commercial laundry room for a hotel. Turns out it's fucking creepy. And it's just, it's very interesting because there's all these cables going across the room holding these immensely heavy bags of hotel linens. You can't see anything. There's all these weird shadows. Like, I've never seen a set piece in a commercial laundry room before, but it turns out it's real interesting. And so Nichols is around, like, Nichols creeps out of the elevator. Richard follows him shortly after. Newman figures out that the elevator stopped on the fifth floor and sends everyone to the laundry. A great moment where they barge in and Gerard says, get rid of all these people. <laughs> and, like, the workers, like, wait, are they all fired? No, like, we're just going to get them out of the room. So yeah, Nichols is in there with Kimball and Joe Pants and Gerard, of course. And they're like stalking around, following each other's shadow. Nichols knocks out Joe Pants with a weird sliding beam, which is there for why, I don't know. But there it is, knocks him out. And then finally, he picks up Joe Pants' gun and he's going to take out Gerard. Like he has the opportunity to shoot Gerard and he's going to do it. And Richard stops him. And the reason Nichols is going to take out Gerard is because Gerard has announced that he knows Richard is innocent and that he knows about Dr. Charles Nichols. And that pulls it all together. But just there's so many cool things happening with that entire sequence of events. But actually, it even starts earlier than the hotel. It starts in the L. But it just flows. Like, it's just, it's stacked up. And there's this cool moment where the radio is reporting that there was an officer down in the L. Gerard says, Kim will do it. And they say conflicting reports, Sam. And then it says that he's cited in the, the mall. That's the basement of the hotel. And Gerard says, I know where he's going. 
because they had been there earlier talking to Nichols again and had noted that Nichols was the keynote speaker at this thing. So like Gerard is on it. He knows Nichols did it. He'd spent earlier that evening establishing it. And it's just like this perfect 20 minutes of extreme tension and physicality finally between Richard and Dr. Nichols. Can I just say, related to what we were talking about earlier, I love how incredibly awkward the fight between Richard Kimball and Charles Nichols is staged. I love that the choreography of that is not like Sylvester Stallone fighting Jason Statham. It mm-hmm. looks like, you know, two med school graduates who are like forced into fighting each other. It's just so awkward. I remember one particular punch that Harrison Ford throws at Dr. Nichols, and my immediate reaction was that looks incredibly awkward, and my second reaction was, punches like that is how you break your wrist. Mm -hmm. But I kind of love that they staged it that way, because these aren't trained fighters. These aren't people that know how to fist fight. These are two doctors who don't know anything about this. This may be the first fist fight they've had since they were six. Yeah, like, we've seen Dr. Nichols, he plays tennis. He doesn't engage in fisticuffs. And so I really love that it's choreographed and staged and shown that it's just incredibly awkward. These two people just kind of wailing on each other with these incredibly ill-formed punches and, like, just reverting to trying to tackle each other because they're not really very good at striking. I really appreciated that aspect of it, that, like, they didn't suddenly turn into two action stars for the big action finale. Yes. And it's slow too. Like I think, especially the modern era, they tend to accelerate the speed of fights, but yeah, like they're kind of lumbering around a little. Yeah. They lose their balance a lot. Like, just like you were saying, Scott, like they don't know what they're doing and it looks all the more realistic for it. And it's also funny because Harrison actually is an action star and like does know how to throw a punch. And he just like, he decides to act differently. Good yeah. job, Harrison. And it's true, like, they wouldn't... What is it? Nichols is a pathologist, uh, so he deals with slides all day, and then Richard was a surgeon, so, like, they would not put their hands at risk unless the stakes were really fucking high. And again, that laundry room scene, as you say, is incredibly visually striking. Mm-hmm. And it can be hard in a straightforward thriller to have, like, interesting cinematography and interesting scene settings in that way. But Mm -hmm. they go to the dam. They have the extensive scene with the bus crash and the train crash at the beginning. They have this laundry room scene. They find visually interesting things to sprinkle into the movie. Yeah, like it's just careful consideration of keeping everything interesting and also having interesting backdrops allows Richard, like it makes it less weird for Richard to say so little because he can like react to what's around him. It just adds to the mood. Totally. Can I ask, regarding Dr. Charles Nichols, I think his characterization is one of the bigger, I don't even want to say criticisms, but it's one of the missteps that I noticed, at least in my eyes, that when the marshals question him and he says, you know, if Richard came to me, I would help him. I know he didn't do it. I know he's innocent. I would help him if he asked me to, but he didn't ask me to, but he's so much smarter than you that you're not going to catch him anyway. Given that he's the one behind the murder attempt against Richard, and it would be very much in his interest if Richard was recaptured and executed, I don't understand why he took that stance with the marshals. 
I understand why he acts that way in front of Richard, but I don't understand why he wouldn't tell the marshals, like, you know, look, here's what I know. I hope you catch the guy. Because that would seem to serve his ends if Richard was recaptured. That's an interesting question. I think he wants the marshals to maybe never talk to him again. Like, if he kind of thought that maybe Richard did do it or it seemed like he had a theory about it, maybe they would come back and talk to him more. Although that doesn't really hold up, does it? That is a good criticism there, Scott. Yeah, I'm struggling to find a really good in-story reason. It misdirects the audience more than it misdirects the characters. Yeah. Because the other doctor that Kimball goes to does help him and is genuinely convinced of his innocence. Yeah, shout out to Jane Lynch before anyone knew who Jane Lynch was. So why is Nichols acting like that? I mean, part of it is beautiful, dramatic irony. When Gerard says is he as smart as you, and he says smarter, which is so awesome when it pays off at the end. It's so interesting because when he says he gave Richard money, like that's actually a crime and they could have arrested and charged him and they choose not to. I love how he says he just gave him whatever he happened to have in his pocket. And with that, Richard is able to like rent an apartment and get like a wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was on my way home from the tennis club, and I gave him what I had in my pocket. It was only like six or seven hundred. I don't think he could get very far on that. That's another thing, actually, that stands out as something that wouldn't work today, is like renting an apartment without a credit check and a social security number. Yeah. That just stood out to me as another thing that seemed a lot more plausible in 1993 than it would today. Fair, fair. And also... Uh... Richard's jeans plus sports jacket look is uh, <laughs> it's quite the look. And he has like a chambray button down shirt and a knit tie. It's a time. <laughs> and I do like the evolution of his look. Like his first thing is to ditch the beard. Then when he gets a chance, he dyes his hair dark. Then when he's seen by Gerard, he changes his look again and dyes it blonde. Or like the Harrison Ford version of blonde that we're all familiar with. So we took a look at the action beats, which are beautiful, but they're overlaid over a really solid, like, old-fashioned mystery story that actually works. Who did kill Richard's wife? We saw their face, but, like, who the heck was that and why? So we have exactly the same amount of information as Richard. Richard's seen that guy's face and knows he has a prosthetic limb, and that's it. We have to follow Richard's lead on this. We never have the jump on him. He leads us and Gerard. We kind of touched on this before, that Richard's first move is to try to figure out who the hell the guy is, and the information he has is about the prosthetic, which is good, because that is better than just the tall guy with the curly hair who was in the house. He eventually gets his short list of suspects, he rules some of them out, and he's finally checking his last suspect, breaks into his house, which as we noted is a crime, but not a violent one. And we get into the apartment and we see at the same moment as Richard, a photograph with the guy in it. And it happens to be his retirement photo from the police force. So we learn that he is a cop or was a cop and that Richard's finally found the guy. And that just kind of changes the tone of everything. And then in a silent scene, Richard is searching the home finds the photos and the desk. And what we learn is the relationship between the guy, Andreas Katsoulis's character that I can't remember his name, but that's fine. Sykes. Sykes, that's right. It's Frederick Sykes. How could I fucking forget? 
So the relationship that Richard gleans from looking at his W-2 and his pay stubs and all that stuff is that he works for Devlin McGregor, which is a pharmaceutical company that we see at the top of the film because Richard and his wife are attending a fundraiser for Devlin McGregor the evening of the murder. So Devlin McGregor is involved. He works for Devlin McGregor. Great. So what does that mean? And Richard is piecing together in flashbacks from that evening that Devlin McGregor is trying to get a new drug patented and through the FDA testing that it needs to go through in order to make it to market. And another flashback we have is Richard is called away from going home on the way home from this event. His team calls him on the phone to say they have a patient that they need his help with. Turns out the guy can't coagulate properly. He's bleeding a lot. And it turns out he's a test subject for the Dublin McGregor protocol, like the test version of the drug causes excess bleeding. Like it's meant to clean out your blood vessels. And so it's an anticoagulant type of drug. And Richard is just commenting that like, you know, the bleeding level is way too high. And it turns out that he was reporting throughout his experience as a vascular surgeon that there was this bleed issue and it was causing damage to the patient's livers. And we learn eventually through the steps of the mystery that Dr. Nichols, in a breathtaking conflict of interest, is both in charge of the study and he's on the board of Devlin McGregor. So it's in Dr. Nichols's financial interest to see this drug brought to market, obvious conflict of interest. And so he's suppressing the findings. He has a doctor he was working with who was doing this, but then at some point, the other doctor dies in an accident and it's real sus, real suspicious about how the other doctor dies. But we discover it's Nichols because the manipulation of the study, a whole lot of it was done on the day of the other doctor's death. And uh, him and Jane Lynch figure out that someone must have had access to it. And we see Richard put the pieces together. It was Nichols. Nichols orchestrated the whole thing. But I just love it because they show this explanation over the course of the film. We have to figure it out along with Richard. We have to rule out red herrings. We have to get rid of suspects. That whole thing is there too within the action movie plotting and speed. So I love how it works together. Like it gives foundation to everything that's happening. It shows why the conflicts have erupted the way that they have. It's just very carefully considered, and I dig it. I think the layers of it were revealed cleverly, where the first question is, who did it? Okay, why? He was working for these people. Okay, why would they want to? Each step goes in a logical sequence to follow us further down and further down until it finally arrives at Dr. Nichols. And, like, no cheating. Yeah. It does raise a question. I feel like Richard was actually the target. I feel like they were expecting Richard to be home, but he was not because he was called in to assist with that procedure. Well, doesn't he say at one point that he was the target? I thought that was a line that he had at some point where he sort of realizes they weren't after her, they were after me. He does say that at one point, yeah. I had thought that there was something with his car, right? He lent his car to Nichols, who made a call to Sykes from his car. Yes. Yeah. Which is what led the police, which is one of the things that led the police to think that Kimball had her killed for the insurance money. Mm-hmm. So I think she actually was the target. I mean, obviously he was the target, but they were consciously framing him, I think. 
Yeah, so that's interesting. It does work either way. I guess it certainly got him out of the way for him to be framed for it. So you think that Nichols called Sykes to make a phone record between Kimball and Sykes, which is interesting. I think it was Nichols being careless. Yeah, that's sort of more the way I lean on it, too. Or just like having nerves about it. For some reason, feeling like you need to reach out to Sykes in that moment. I like the thing going on with watching Gerard get to the end of the story. Like they figure out that Sykes is the dirty one. They're trying to figure out what's going on there. They look at the phone records again. One of his assistants, say Kimball, called Sykes. And this is my favorite line reading. Gerard says, get Sykes in here now. It's so tense. And it just shows the policing mood here that Gerard is super unimpressed about the lie. But then it turns out that Sykes wasn't lying about never speaking to Kimball. He's never spoken to Kimball. It was fucking Nichols the whole time. But yeah, like, I just love it. Like, Richard solves the mystery by finding the photos in Sykes' desk. And Gerard solves the mystery by looking at the arrest record and figuring out who had the car and who had the keys. So like they both get there but from slightly different angles, which they've been doing the entire story. It's just another thing that makes it not boring for us, the audience. Yeah, there's sort of a doubling of the story there where we're following Richard Kimball trying to see will he figure out who was behind it. But we're also following Tommy Lee Jones. Like, will he figure out who was behind it? Yeah, the story construction uses both men's point of view to help the audience solve the mystery. Like they're both bringing us pieces to solve. They each solve the mystery themselves. But then like when you combine both of their solution processes, like we get even more as the audience. It's just so carefully considered. I don't know how things were drafted or how many versions of this went on. I know at least two did because there was that thing I was talking about earlier about they weren't sure if they were going to make it ambiguous about Richard's guilt or not. But where they landed is so great. There's nothing wasted. There's fantastic characterization that's very spare. Like, they don't have a lot of time to spend on these people, especially the team. But they're so distinct. The sympathy created by both Kimball and Gerard, like, you feel for both of them. I want them to get to the same place. I want them both to solve the mystery. I actually do want Gerard to find Richard, but not too early. So when he finds him at exactly the right moment, it just pays off. Like, it makes me feel so good and so complete. Like, we all know what has gone down by the time they confront each other. And it's just, oh, every year. I might watch it today, actually. It's so good. (laughs) I think part of that strong characterization is the way that the two of them approach the mystery differently. Because Richard Kimball is like skulking around the hospital, looking up records and trying to match people that way. And Gerard is just sort of like barging his way through things, questioning the police, questioning Sykes, trying to intimidate people, you know, sort of approaching it from his own methodology that's more rooted in his personality and his position as a marshal. So the way that the two of them approach the mystery and the different ways that they go about closing in on the answers is also part of the characterization of each of the two characters. It's not just Tommy Lee Jones following the breadcrumbs that Harrison Ford weaves for him. He's also doing his own investigation and approaching things in his own manner. Yeah, really strong point. So that makes the script efficient because it's doing the two things at once. It's revealing the mystery and doing character work. Like there's just so much going on with the script. It's just, it's so good. It really is very, very well done. Like 
almost every aspect of this movie really is really, really good. What else is there to say, gentlemen? Do you want to cover the score real quick? I know, Glenn, you mentioned a little bit about it already. This score sort of falls for me in with a lot of 90s scores where it's pretty good in the movie. It's okay. It's fine. But it's not anything that like stands out as particularly excellent to me, at least not compared with like some of my favorite 90s scores. It works well in the film, but it's not anything that's particularly interesting to me outside of the film. Yeah. I basically agree. Like I said before, there are a couple of highlights. The main theme is fine. The more stretched out, long-lined, vindicated version of it at the very end of the film is something I find rather compelling. But for the most part, it is somewhat generic tension scoring. It hits the moments it needs to hit, and it propels the moments it needs to propel. It was nominated for the Oscar. The film was that successful and that prominent. I don't think there was a single soul who thought it had a chance of beating Schindler's List, but it got nominated. Hell of a year to get nominated. Yeah. So I'm not up on my history of film score and like what was popular when scoring a film. I do notice that to my ear, there are not character themes. Like there's frequently a character based theme, at least like modern types of films that I consume, like a character will show up and they have either their own theme or a version of the main theme that is like associated with them. I don't hear any of that in this. No, there really isn't that, at least as far as I noticed. There's a couple of motifs he falls on and a couple of repeating melodies that he uses for different scenes, but I don't know that any of them are necessarily specifically associated with anything other than just like, you know, this is the general theme and this is the mounting tension music and stuff like that. Yeah. There is a main theme that has a few different settings throughout the film that appears in some of the more sympathetic scenes for Dr. Kimball as he's making his way out of the river after he jumps off of the dam. Of course, at the end of the movie, when Tommy Lee Jones unlocks him and they ride off into that good night. Yeah, we got some expansive string work. Yeah, that theme also appears over some of the action sequences in that sort of setting. It also appears in some of the investigative scenes. And I think when he's making his fake ID, if I recall correctly, 
So it is used in a few of the different settings, a few of the different moods in the score. So there was one, I don't know if you call it a theme, but there was one piece of music that was used several times for like some tension scenes of like Kimball sneaking around or escaping and whatever. that really strongly reminded me of the Air Raid track that we used as one of our musical bumpers in our very first episode when we were talking about the Hunger Games series. And of course, the Hunger Games series were also composed by James Newton Howard. So that tracks. Oh, interesting detail. A lot of it is noticeably his own style. Yeah, you're right. That was almost the most interesting part of it to me is how identifiably it is still his style, even comparing, you know, a 1993 score to scores from 2012, 2015, even his most recent work that was just nominated for the Oscar this year. There is an identifiable James Newton Howard style that you can sort of see in all of it. That was very interesting to me. All right, friendos, should we wrap it up? Yeah, is there anything else we actually want to cover? I mean, I could make more disparaging comparisons to the series, but I figure we've done enough of that. Yeah, I think we've dipped into that enough, probably. Unless you want to talk about, like, the actual guy? Really? What actual guy? The actual person this is based on? Yeah. I don't know anything about that. I actually, other than a couple of clips and some imagery that I've seen, I actually don't know all that much about the 60s fugitive TV series, let alone a case that it might have been based on. It is similar in a lot of amazingly specific ways, even though every producer of every iteration of The Fugitive has denied it. But like... The fact that the wife was bludgeoned to death, the fact that there was no break-in. It was a doctor in Ohio, Dr. Sam Shepard. Seriously? Yes, seriously. He was convicted in 1954 of beating his wife to death, his pregnant wife. Ooh. He said there was an intruder in the house, and he wrestled with the intruder, but the police found no evidence of an intruder... And whatever injuries that Shepard had, they said, came from his struggle with his wife rather than a struggle with any intruder. And so he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison in 1954. Ten years later, an appeals court overturned his conviction, saying that the sensationalist media atmosphere surrounding the crime tainted the jury. And two years later, in 1966, the Supreme Court upheld that decision. And so in 1966, he was put on trial again for the murder of his wife. And this time he was found not guilty based in part on testimony from an expert on blood splatters who said that the way the wife's blood was splattered on the wall suggested that the person beating her was left-handed while Dr. Shepard was right-handed. Oh, well, 
that might be a case of finding the right conclusion for the wrong reasons, because to my understanding, blood splatter is kind of junk science. Yes. And there's no reason to say that they necessarily reached the right conclusion. I mean, we don't really know if Sam Shepard killed his wife or not. His son has proclaimed his innocence for years and years. But, you know, this isn't a script where there's an obvious answer. Yeah, of course. The other suspect people have suggested was a handyman that worked for the family sometimes, and so the theory was he would have had a way to get in. But there isn't really a lot of evidence suggesting his guilt either, so... The, the reason that comes to mind for me at all is that later in life, Sam Shepard used his notoriety from the whole murder case to start a professional wrestling career. Oh my god. He started wrestling under the name Killer Sam Shepard and used his known identity as a doctor to use his anatomical knowledge to come up with nefarious and devastating submission holds, including he was the first one to ever use the mandible claw. What? Oh. Oh no. But he only wrestled for about a year before he died, because by this point he was a raging alcoholic. Damn, okay. Life is a rich tapestry. <laughs> But, like, everybody involved with any iteration of The Fugitive has always denied that it was based on his story, but there are several things that are the same in both instances. Like, Shit. a lot of the details match up. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I just found it interesting. Yeah. That is fascinating. <laughs> well, on that note... Thank you, Alana, once again for coming on the show. I'm very, very glad to have you back and hope to have you back soon. Thank you. It was just an utter pleasure and makes me feel a bit more normal and more connected. Even though we're doing this remotely, it's just it's a lovely callback to the before. <laughs> yes, very much. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, you can find us at NontoxicFanboys on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at NontoxicFanboys at gmail.com or visit our website at NontoxicFanboys.com. We also stream video games every Monday night at 8 p.m. Eastern at twitch.tv slash NontoxicFanboys. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash NontoxicFanboys. My other podcast is called Feeling Good For Now and features nuggets of positivity as well as spectacular advice in response to listener questions. You can find that at bit.ly slash goodfornow and please send any and all advice questions to spectacularadvice at gmail.com. The theme music to this podcast is Discovery by Alexander Nakarada. Details are in the episode description. Other music in this episode comes from the original scores to The Fugitive... The Hunger Games Catching Fire, and The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1, all composed by James Newton Howard, and excerpted here for the purposes of review and critique. A full list of tracks cited can be found in this episode's description, and if you liked what you heard, links to buy the scores can also be found there. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.
I don't think we need a non-spoiler segment. Hopefully fucking not. It was 1993. (laughs) (laughs) Should we do a segment about how, you know, for those of you only familiar with the 2020 version, this is very different. 